Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, it's Friday, April 10th. This week, we're talking about Airbnb's $1 billion raise, an interesting panel discussion about VCs and what they're funding these days, the sad state of the commercial real estate market, layoffs at Eventbrite, Yelp, and others, and Bill Gates' thoughts on the way forward. On Tuesday, Airbnb announced that it had raised $1 billion from new investors Silver Lake and Sixth Street Partners at an interest rate of 10% plus LIBOR plus warrants at a valuation of $18 billion, almost half the valuation that investors paid for Airbnb's last round of financing. I know those numbers surprised a lot of people. To be honest, I didn't really know what to make of the 10% figure. I don't see that anybody put that into sort of a context to compare what companies would typically be charged in this environment. But certainly it suggests that the company is maybe more distressed even than we realized. I thought it was also interesting that the company didn't turn to its earlier investors. Its earlier investors probably didn't want to take any more risk. Silver Lake and Sixth Street Partners saw a distressed company that needed the money and they were able to work a really good deal. I guess so. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I credit to Fortune for first flagging this trend. But the private equity firm Silver Lake Partners has really sort of stepping up in this environment. Reuters says it's looking to raise $16 billion from investors right now for its sixth flagship buyout fund. And the idea is for it to snap up companies that depress valuations. Airbnb is obviously one example of how it plans to do that. It's also been involved in recent deals for Waymo and Twitter. But back to Airbnb, how bad do we think it is? It's definitely a difficult situation for Airbnb. Reportedly, Silver Lake and Sixth Street Partners also asked for verbal commitments from management that it would hire somebody to support CEO Brian Chesky. It should be noted that Silver Lake and Sixth Street Partners denied this. That's interesting. You know, uh, Airbnb's COO, Belinda Johnson, had announced late last year that she was stepping down as COO Uh, at the end of March. So I wonder if they're just looking for another COO type figure. I haven't heard them discuss her replacement yet. One story that attracted more attention than I thought it would, or I might have spent more time on it, was just a simple write-up of a webinar that I saw yesterday and found interesting. It was hosted by Fenwick & West, the law firm, and it was a discussion with three New York VCs, Hadley Harris, Brad Zverluga, and Ellie Wheeler, who were asked what's happening out there. They answered that it's been very hard to think about funding anything brand new since the coronavirus took hold in the U.S. First, as we talked uh, with Neil Sequeira about last week, taking online pitches from people that VCs have never met is very unnatural still in this moment. So everyone's very reluctant to do that. They also talked about being very swept up in these early weeks with sort of assessing the health of their portfolio companies, you know, deciding which to leave behind, although they didn't say that explicitly, which to figure out how to extend their runway. And I guess in best case scenarios, which of the startups can actually seize on this particular moment in time? Because of course, some companies are picking up steam because of their particular service or offering being maybe more needed right now, like say automated workflow software. 
The bottom line of that conversation, though, was that they're very focused on everything but taking brand new meetings right now, which founders should know. In fact, Harris had called bullshit on VCs who've been tweeting that they're open for business. He said they are not. Meanwhile, they collectively made the point that even if the VCs had time right now, founders really need to absorb that the landscape has changed. I think that not all entrepreneurs appreciate how fast a market can change, especially first-time founders who haven't seen anything like this before. So it could take a minute for people to sort of adjust to new terms, lower valuations, that sort of stuff. I will say that whenever I write about VCs, I hear from rivals. And today I heard from one investor who snarkily called it a joke that VCs are too busy with their own portfolio companies to fund anything. He was like, I'm pretty sure they're ducking their heads in the sand and praying their companies survive right now. And I'm sure in some cases that's right. Well, that snarky comment aside, that candor is appreciated from those VCs. I think it really is a time where VCs are reassessing their portfolios and not looking to write checks, which means it's probably exactly the right time to invest. So you're suggesting to zig when others are zagging. I like it. In fairness to the VCs, though, I do think another thing that's been very preoccupying for them is figuring how to wring money out of the Small Business Administration and its sort of piece of the stimulus bill, which I think has been more complicated than anyone imagined. VCs are also, of course, very preoccupied with layoffs at their companies. One company that caught the attention of everybody this week was Eventbrite, which laid off 45% of its staff. Yeah, layoffs, unfortunately, continue to be a point of interest, depressing as they are. It's something the VCs talked about on that panel discussion yesterday. They said, really, cut as deeply as you can, because if you have to do it a second time, it really takes a toll on your company's culture. But it does feel like these are across the board, given that the shutdown is impacting nearly every sector of the economy. You had Eventbrite, as you mentioned. You had Minted, which is a personalized stationary company. It did a massive layoff because, you know, who can invite anyone to anything right now? Away the travel brand did a massive layoff after seeing 90% of its revenue dry up. Yelp also conducted a massive layoff this week because, you know, people aren't exactly looking for places to eat. Connie, you also wrote an interesting story about the commercial real estate market, which seems to be in trouble right now. Yeah. You know, what I think is interesting is there's definitely a huge question mark around all of this. We're all in uncharted waters, but my sense is that people have adapted super fast to working from home and that's going to make cash strapped startups think twice about renewing their leases. Also, it's going to make them reconsider how much space they want to try and sublease once the real estate market opens up again. I find all of that a little bit amusing, given how much startups were trying to jam employees together at tables and share common workspaces. Now it's completely the opposite. Exactly right. But it's not just startups that take up space. Of course, startups take up a lot of space in San Francisco specifically, but the New York Times has a super interesting piece out today about the strip clubs of Instagram. So apparently the 26-year-old son of Sean Diddy Combs has partnered with a pal to host these virtual pop-up strip clubs on Instagram. And they are maybe not so surprisingly seeing tons of interest, given that the many bars and strip clubs around the world have been forced to close because of the coronavirus. Dancers love it too, though. This is really interesting. Women tell the Times that they've made thousands of dollars in donations. One woman said she's made around $18,000 when she'd otherwise be completely out of work. She also said she's making more in five minutes than she made in eight hours at the club where she was working. As interestingly, Combs and his partners are even hearing from sponsors who want to get involved in these pop-ups. You could see this proliferating to a completely out of control degree. And I I doubt Facebook wants its Instagram property to become the place to go to watch virtual lap dances, but maybe I'm wrong about that. How can Instagram allow this when it won't even allow breasts to be shown on its service? I was wondering the same thing. 
Maybe if it's invite only and not open to the broader public, it's a possibility, but I don't know the answer to that. One person who has been very interested in reaching the broader public is Bill Gates, who has been relatively optimistic about the coronavirus epidemic and how quickly we will be able to bounce back. However, he did have a little bit of bad news this week when he told the Financial Times that he believed that coronavirus outbreaks will reoccur every 20 years. He believes that governments have learned the lessons from this outbreak and will encourage people to be better prepared and will also have the resources to deal with these epidemics in the future. But it kind of was a kick in the pants to hear that. And now our interview with Silicon Valley's favorite restructuring expert, Marty Pitchison of Sherwood Partners, a firm that's been helping to unwind venture-backed startups since before the 2000.com bust. But before that interview, a word from our sponsor. Health IQ, it's the only company that combines your current health, health literacy, and active lifestyle to better predict your long-term health, getting you special life insurance rates of up to 41% lower, and in some cases, can it be true, volume savings of up to 47% lower. Check out healthiq.com. For the last nearly 30 years, Marty Pitchison and the firm he co-founded, Sherwood Partners, have specialized in selling off the assets of startups when they fail, as well as helping them extend their runway so that if they do have to close down, they can do so in slow motion versus at high speed. It has earned Marty a variety of nicknames from The Terminator to The Undertaker. Marty, I think we accidentally called you The Grave Digger last week, but I know you take all of these in stride. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You know, I only take it in stride because we don't close any companies. I don't think we've ever closed a company. Someone stops funding as a problem. We get called in to clean up, and which is what we do right. very well. Right, right, right. Now, I know you are the go-to firm for everyone. So first, on a personal level, how are you doing? Is COVID-19 keeping you out of the office? Our offices are all closed down. We were fortunate that my son, Joshua, who works with us and runs our agency, IP, forced us into Teams about three months ago. So we're on Teams. We have a programmer now. We're totally automating Sherwood's front end, back end, all touchable and workable from Teams. Oh, that's really great. Well, I'm kind of curious to see how many people sort of rely on Teams and other remote networking tools to get their jobs done going forward, if we're going to see people heading back to their offices uh, in the same numbers as, as just left them. We talked last three years ago, which I can't believe it's been that long, but at that time you were winding down, you told me two to four companies a week. What is the pacing right now? Two to three a day. Wow. How do you assess whether a company is even worth your time? Well, that is not a good question because we have relationships. So the question really is, how do you not take care of your relationships when they feel the need to get something done? As you know, you've been in the industry a long time, too. It's an ecosystem, and there's no way you can't help your friends and people that rely on you for anything. It doesn't really matter. We all have our space. We have to take care of those that, you know, rely on our experience. But Marty, isn't it true that some of these companies are worth nothing? Don't you have to give some of these VCs a little bit of tough love sometimes and say, hey, I really value our relationship, but there's nothing really here. 
oh, do I hate that question. First of all, <laughs> I don't think the VCs are stupid. I think they're very, very smart. And with the founders, they see through time. We always give everyone tough love because our job really is to just be honest, to give people the truth so they can make better decisions. The question, and I'm asked this all the time if I'm a keynote speaker or speaking somewhere, isn't, wasn't this company bad? They're, none of them are bad. Their numbers are really simple. If you have 2,500 companies funded per year, that means at the end of a LPGP cycle, say it's 10, 12 years. Do any of us believe that every year, 2,000 paradigm shifts will happen in the world, be it consumer or industry? And it's just not possible. So the failures just mean they didn't get to the finish line on time. So the answer is we give tough love all the time, which we just call honesty. I mean, there's so many reasons companies just have to stop, but I don't believe mm -hmm. they were bad companies. We've talked to these CEOs. They're all smart people. It's a shame when you go in and there's this vibrant activity and the vibrant action at the company and the hope to win. And then when we finish, you see the empty facility makes you sad because you're locking the door for the last time. When you go in, when you do accept a job, how long does it take typically to assess a company's assets? And where do you start? Well, luckily, we've been around long enough. So it's usually two weeks that we'll go in. We're requested by the board and they'll retain us to what we do, sort of a wellness review. So we're going to go in with what we call baby eyes. We're going to go look in, kick the tires, ask the right questions, review everything, and then we'll give a report to the company and to the board to make some better decisions because they have another set of eyes that we're not tied in. We weren't at the company two years ago. And so it works really, really, really well for us. And that's, of course, if there's time. What do you mean by that, if there's time? Well, you know, sometimes we get called the last minute. Um, we've been telling the boards to sooner to call us, the better, because our goal is very simple. If you call us in sooner and we can take care of yesterday's problems and your C-level people can take care of tomorrow's dream and future, it's a win-win for everyone. But a lot of people don't want a third party to come in to take care of the mistakes that were made. And we all make mistakes. No one's perfect. When is too late? How much runway does a company need to have in order to take advantage of your services? That's a good question. And we believe the number and it's a give take, but it really, really, really is six months. It just takes time to turn the boat and rekindle the fire and direction. There are times we will go in and we'll see in a company that the thing that they developed that really isn't of use was more practical for what they should be doing than what they're dreaming about chasing a competitor. As we all know, everything goes in herds. Someone goes into doing this and all of a sudden, boom, everyone's investing in that. So anomalies really are the key to success. If you're not going to be an anomaly, in all probability, you're not going to be a grand slam. So I guess, Marty, what percentage of the time are you trying to help companies extend their runway versus actually kind of figuring out what assets are worth what and, and selling them off for the investors? Okay, good question. I would say under 10% because boards, 
and don't want to really disrupt or upset the C-level founders and the founders think they can do it all. They can't do it all. No one in life can do it all. And so those that we know a little better will bring us in earlier. Those that wait till the last minute, it winds up winding down. I've been an advocate, really, of never really letting a founder even be a CEO. I think that's a very dangerous title because you're CEOing absolutely nothing. What are you CEOing? They should be a CCO, a chief concept officer, so that up the line, if in fact you need to bring adult supervision in or a CEO that has more experience to take it to the next level, the founder doesn't have to go back to his friends and family and say, oh my God, they brought someone in to do this and I'm no longer the CEO. Why embarrass the person? They can still keep the corner office. No one's talking about taking their money or salary. These are all building blocks for success. And so that really needs to be more the key than just a title. Do you find that you're selling teams versus IP? How do you separate those two? So that's a good question too. There are different reasons that companies acquire. Sometimes they'll buy the company and then shut it down because they really wanted the aqua hire for the engineers. Sometimes they want the engineers and the patents or the customer base as well. And sometimes it's just the patents. So I would say the aqua hire is probably 25% and the rest is really just buying the company and or the IP assets. We discovered that the hard assets lost all their value as far as trying to monetize the company to get the secured lenders and investors money back. And we started selling IP. It worked. It was a smart move on our part. And it enabled us to go ahead and build a huge database. I mean, all the major companies pick up our phone call, which is the key. Most of the big companies have already been pitched because the VC is not going to just close the company up and not hire a tier one M&A firm. So they try hard, but sometimes it just isn't the value for the acquirer. They will buy it at pennies on the dollar, but they're not going to pay two, three, four, five X. What can you do that the VCs can't do? What are you telling these acquiring companies? It's not what we can do and they can do. It goes to everyone has a job, right? The VCs are with the, I guess, the founders. They see through time. They have relationships as to what can make the company go, what makes Johnny tick. Our job is to see what can go wrong. If companies would bring us in sooner, we'd be able to take care of yesterday's problems while they would take care of tomorrow's success because we can't do everything. Remember, the company made promises to vendors, to suppliers, and now all of a sudden I've got to go to them and say, look, we cannot pay this anymore. So better for them to go face the future, let us take care of yesterday's problems so the company can balance out and be successful. How are you guys compensated? Are you paid a flat fee or are there success metrics and do you take payment in cash and equity? Well, you're asking a good question. So no, no, we don't take equity. I don't think it's morally right. We've been offered it. We just basically take a fee plus a success component. We are now getting calls asking if we can help restructure, would we take equity? And we're talking about it, but I want to be in our space and I want the VCs to enjoy their space and their successes. So we know who we are. 
We want to stay in our space and, and be true to it. However, I think through this next turn, which I call, of course, the great unwinding, I think the next turn, we just will consider it, but we know who we are and we have to sort of, you know, leave it there. Um, Marty, what size companies are you seeing predominantly? You know, I don't give names out, but we're in companies anywhere from a 10, $25 million investment to a billion, billion five. It's not about what size companies they are because they, when they come to us, they're all broke. You know, if we're closing it down to clean up and monetize what we can, they are basically in the same position if they had $20 million investment or a billion dollar investment. One question I had, Marty, is how do you guys differentiate yourselves from the many law firms out there now that are working on restructuring and have created restructuring divisions? Obviously, you guys have been doing this for much longer and you have uh, very deep relationships. But if you could comment on specific differences, maybe in your business model or in your methods, that'd be great. Well, number one, we're not a law firm. Number two, I don't believe the law firms have the personnel or the infrastructure or the relationships to sell distressed. Every major law firm in the industry and outside the industry, IP or know-how or technology is the base gut of the company were the company they call. It works. Why would you try to do it yourself? And so we've done this for almost 30 years. I've been networking, as you know, in the Valley since probably 93, 94. And so, they use us because we're good at what we do. If you're a VC, what should you expect in terms of cents on the dollar? What is sort of the average return on an investment? Is it 10 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar? Very tough question because when the VCs call us to wind it down, it, it's a wind down. Does it really mean if they invested $100 million and we sell for $5 million? Does that really mean something to their ROI? Well, a little if you do a lot of them, but not really. The most important thing we believe, and I think the VCs do, is they have to monetize their dollars. They have to monetize their time and the companies that they've invested in. Now, if you talk about the secured lender, we're pretty good at getting them close to 100 cents, 80 cents on the dollar. So Marty, you're coming up with your own sort of internal calculations about what you think the IP might be worth. Obviously, the market pays what it'll pay. So what you're doing is coming up with a list of potential acquirers, sending out notice to these potential acquirers that this IP is up for grabs, taking the highest offer. Are these buyers paying in cash? Is it a mix of, of cash and equity in some cases? It's all cash. Marty, I know we have to let you go, but I wanted to ask before doing that, you've mentioned that this is unlike the dot-com bust of 2000. It feels much the same to me. In what ways is it different? Do you think it's going to be worse? We knew at the end of the dot-coms, the dot-coms probably weren't going to be anymore that model. We've seen lots of ups and downs where social media gets hot. There's different areas that get hot and then all of a sudden they just stop and something else comes in. Right now, it's across the board. This is why I'm calling it the great unwinding. We don't know where this is going to end. What we do know is a couple of things. One, that the tech world where we were trying to take everyone as far as using our phones like we're using now and our screens and working at home, it's going to accelerate 
that part of the business. Okay, we know that. Two, we know the world will never be the same. God forbid we go to a movie in nine months and someone's coughing, but they really choked on a piece of popcorn. We're all going to freak out. Third, we know that the virus will probably continue in different virus forms because the carrier is not only the human species, but the airplane. So we're going to start doing things different. I personally would not want to be an investor in office real estate. What we're going through is very sad. It's scary even for me. I'm not happy about it. It's weird. It's bizarre. But we're not in control. As a lot of the um, governors have said, the virus is in control. We have no control. So it's different because we don't know the end. We can take another left turn. As we think we're coming out of the circle, we can see a left turn and we go back into the circle. So it's nothing like the dot-com. The dot-com was very specific on the type of business that was going to fail, and it failed. Right now, it's across the board. I was on a panel, and we were talking about General Motors and Ford and Mercedes and Porsche when they said they're going to take all the workers back April 1st. And I just shook my head and said, I have no clue what you're talking about. First of all, there's excess inventory at all the lots. And we know that May 15th, give or take, is when you start to get ready to do your next year model. So you're tooling up. And why would you build more excess inventory? So it's about inventory. Why is this going to change? People are sort of forgetting it's about supply chain. If we're missing one part out of Italy, God forbid, or China, wherever, and we can't get that part, the assembly line stops. Everything today is different than it ever was. This is a black swan. This is a big black swan. And we have no clue what's going on. And again, it's to me, it's the great unwinding. We'll come out fine. We're going to change a lot of things that we do and how we do things. And we'll be a better society. I don't know about you, but I have a house. And I just saw today in Bloomberg how Mother Nature has come back. I'm hearing birds outside. I'm seeing hummingbirds. I just put a hummingbird feeder outside. It's great. <laughs> we do really appreciate the sort of peace that this has brought uh, to all of us. Marty, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It's a good talking to you too. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. That's the news for this week. Don't forget to read Strictly VC every single day. And if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, you can do this at strictlyvc.com. See you next week.